0: This is a great Sunday for you to join us. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you have come to our fall kickoff. This is one of uh, our favorite Sundays in the year, uh, not just because we get to have uh, bounce houses and we get to have Maple View ice cream, which I I hope you stay and enjoy of at the end of the service, but because uh, there's some excitement. It's the start of a new season. Uh, It's a time when new people from the community come to check us out. And if that's you and you're here this morning, welcome. Maybe you saw... One of our lawn signs, maybe you got our mailer, Uh, maybe you saw the big flag out there uh, at the entrance, maybe someone from our church invited you, whatever the case, we're so happy you're here, so glad you're joining us as we uh, start this new season, which may be a new season of all of us figuring out what it means to be a community together, what it means for you to maybe check out church for the first time or the first time in a long time. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, Besides all the ice cream and bounce houses and all that, we've got great people here, and we've got uh, a gift for you if you happen to be a guest, so make sure you grab one of those on your way out if you haven't gotten it yet. Uh, For many in the school system, this is sort of the last gasp of the summer before school starts, and they go back to the daily grind of getting up early and studying, and trying to get good grades, and pass their classes, and balance the weight of studies, and extracurriculars, and all that. However, for some of our high school students, uh, summer uh, fun kind of ended a little while ago uh, because football season has already started. Football season has already started for some of our high school students. Now, I didn't grow up in a place that had high school football, so I was shocked to find out how much of high school football student's summer is occupied? How short their actual completely free time is. It's occupied by trainings, by practices, by summer camps, by all sorts of things uh, uh, that, that involve their time long before a game is played. They run scrimmages, they learn plays, they train, they build strength, they do all sorts of things before, uh, before the first kickoff. They do all of that. So that by the time the season starts, by the time they face their first opponent, each team member knows the position that they're supposed to play. They know it at their core and so that together they all understand how to play as a team. They do all of this in the summer so that each one of them knows their position knows where they're supposed to be, knows what they're supposed to do, knows how they're supposed to react at a particular moment. And so as watching each other play, they figure out how they play well together as a team. And there are parallels to life in this dynamic because we all face challenges in life. Some of them we welcome. Some of them we seek out. We welcome certain challenges in life. We set a goal or we take on a new opportunity. That is a challenge for us to grow and develop into. Other times the challenges come from outside of us. Those include adversity, opposition, and just other things that are handed to us to grow into. And for all those things, there are things to know, things to believe, things to engage in as individuals and as a community that will enable us to meet The challenges of life, that will enable us to overcome the challenges of life, whether they are expected or unexpected, invited or not. So today we're going to kick off a series titled Inner Strength, Building a Resilient Core, which will focus on the things in the ancient scriptures, in the Bible, uh, the things that the Bible teaches us about us as individuals and about us as a community that enable us to meet those challenges, that give us a strong, resilient Core that set us up to build resilient lives. We want to be individuals with a resilient core within a resilient community so that together we can be a resilient people here in Chatham County and wherever God might take us beyond. And we're going to start this series. We're going to start building a resilient core, we're going to start building some inner strength by addressing three of the most common lies that we are tempted to believe about ourselves. All of these lies, each of these lies, are alluring. But ultimately, even though they're alluring, even though on the surface they may seem to make sense, ultimately, they weaken us. They weaken our core, and they undermine us as individuals. And if they undermine us as individuals, then they undermine us as a community. And if they undermine us as a community, they undermine us as a people. Today, the one we're going to address is what's known in certain circles as the performance lie. My value is based on what I do. I am what I do. I am valuable based on what I produce or what I attain or what I achieve. The measure of me as an individual is to look at what I have accomplished. The more I produce, the more I attain, the more I do, the more significant I am and it's an alluring one. We think well of high achievers, don't we? We admire them. We aspire to be like them. It's an appealing belief to hold because it's pretty simple and straightforward to understand and because we have lots of say in it, or at least it feels like it. It's so deeply ingrained in us that its fingerprints are all over some of the first pieces of information we share about ourselves and we want to know about others. Because within the first five questions you ask of someone or you expect to be asked is the question, what do you do? What do you do? We've made it a priority in understanding someone to know what they do, how they perform, what they are capable of achieving. Now, even though the performance paradigm seems to work, and let me just give a, just a, a strong caveat. I am not saying that what we do does not matter. I'm saying that it's a lie that our value is based on what we do. So let me just make that clear right from the beginning. Even though the performance paradigm seems to work, and it, makes, it seems to make sense, it proves itself to be a lie when we attach it to our value. And we'll see that because it's one of the threads that runs through the story that Matt read for us. Let me set the stage. Jesus has been drawing crowds to himself. He's been drawing people to himself. He's been drawing attention as he's been going around the region where he was teaching and healing and performing miracles and bringing freedom to people and and communicating with a sense of authority that had not been seen before. He's been attracting people to him, all sorts of people who need the sorts of things he is bringing have been coming to him. And his, what he's been saying, what he's been doing, they've they, they, sort of been attracted to him. He's been gra- they've been gravitating towards him. And on the periphery of all these people who need healing and who need freedom and who find his teaching appealing and alluring and engaging and attractive and fresh and authoritative, or at least in this story, on the periphery, are these groups of people who are often called the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. These are people who are determined. Their life is set on determining and understanding what it means to live a life rightly before God. What are the things they need to to do and to not do? When they need to do those things and when they need to not do those things? What are the things they need to engage in in order to please God? What are the boxes they need to check in order to be considered good people? Righteous people, people in good standing with God. They are people who are deeply bought into the performance lie. Their sense of worth, their status as Pharisees and teachers of the law is predicated on what they do, how well they keep the law, how well they understand it, how well they communicate it, how well they can execute it. They don't like that Jesus seems to be exhibiting signs of God's favor, seems to be carrying signs of God's authority, seems to be exhibiting signs of God's power. They don't like that he's doing that while at the same time hanging out with people whom the rules that they are set to follow seem to push them away from. The rules that they have set their lives to follow seem to say these are not people to hang out with. These are not people for whom the power of God should be demonstrated. These are not people with whom someone who seems to demonstrate so much of who God is should be with. They don't like that. They don't like that Jesus is hanging out with people who aren't as strict about the law about doing the right things as they are. And they don't like that. So the passage tells us that they mutter. They grumble and they say, this man welcomes sinners and eat with them, eats with them. And you should take that word sinners as kind of like a slur. It's kind of like a sort of a, a pejorative towards, it's, it's, it's like saying, he hangs out with those people with those people. It's like they're wondering why Jesus would spend time with people who clearly aren't worth it. Because they've not gotten it right. Because many of them aren't even trying. Many of them don't even care if they're doing the right things. They, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, clearly much better people than those people. Jesus should be spending time with them. Those people are lost causes. What's the point? And this illustrates one of the ways that the performance lie proves to be untrue and undermines us, which is that when we, play, when, we, when we believe the performance lie, we end up playing the comparison game. The performance lie sets us up to play the comparison game. Uh, when I was growing up, I was bought into the performance lie, and the thing that I performed well at was school, particularly standardized tests. I was usually near the top of my class in general, but I, things came easily to me, so I didn't study that much. So usually the folks who could hustle studying would sort of be in the top two positions, and I'd usually be hovering around one, two, or three, depending. But when it came to standardized tests, I was consistently number one. And uh, at around, and, and I was proud of that, right? If you didn't do as well as me, I made sure you knew about it. <laughs> I wore that badge proudly. And, uh, and uh, when, I, when, I, when it came time for me to go to high school, I ended up going to a school that was specialized in math and science. And so it was a school where the academic rigor was higher. And I remember my mom told me, she's like, well, you've been comfortable so far in the school you've been in because you've been a big fish in a little pond. But you're going to study with fish who are just about the same size as you are. And so I knew that going in. And in the first year, we took sort of what would be the equivalent of the SAT. I didn't grow up in this uh, in the mainland United States, so we had different standardized tests. I, grew, I, I took the equivalent of the SAT. And among the school, which was 150 students uh, large, it was between uh, 10th to 12th grade. In 10th grade, I was the highest score in the whole school on that test. And that was not a secret. <laughs> I let people know, and I carried that with me, you know, because I was not getting the best grades, but I was like, ha, 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 big fish in big pond? No, 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 I am now just as big as I ever was. And then the next year, this one kid came in in 10th grade, and when the standardized test came around and it was their turn to take it, he got a better score than I did. He didn't make it public, he didn't talk about it a lot, but I found out. Now, here's the appropriate thing to say in that moment, Congratulations. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. Because our test scores compared to each other don't matter. We're both more than high enough in our scores to get into whatever college we want. Good for you. But that was not what I said. What I said, what I started to say to people around was, um, and what I said to him was, uh, yeah, I heard you did well on that test. Maybe I'll take it again. See if I do better than you. Oh, man, it's so embarrassing. But I was deeply caught in the comparison game because I believed the performance lie. Because the thing that made me valuable was that I was the smartest kid because I proved it out with the standardized test. And when someone else did better than me, even though that didn't affect me at all in terms of my life choices or the course that my life was going to take, I felt threatened. I felt threatened, and I responded. Friends, the comparison game is time-consuming. It's distracting, and it keeps us from being both able to enjoy our own accomplishments and our own things and celebrate with others. And it's all rooted in the performance lie. And Jesus is hanging out with these people who don't do things right, He's hanging out with these sinners, and he has these Pharisees and teachers of the law grumbling and critiquing, so he tells three stories, and the story Matt read for us is the last story that he tells. All three stories have a theme of something or someone being lost, being lost or or straying or, or being sort of unavailable or unfound. And what's very clear in those stories is that the state of being lost is not okay, That there's something about that state of being lost that can't remain that way. And so every time in the stories, the thing or the person is found. And when it's found, there is celebration. Things go well. There is a party. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' criticism of him, to the comparison game. And it's almost like he's saying, you think these people are lost and not worth my time? But they are worth my time. In fact, they are most worth my time. In fact, I came precisely for them because the lost need to be found. And his story of his father and the two sons reinforces that theme and then adds additional layers to it. We'll start with the younger son. You've got him first. Here's what it tells us about the younger son. The younger son starts the story off by turning his back on his family. In that culture, asking for your inheritance early, for your share of the inheritance early, was akin to saying, I wish you were dead to your father. Because it was saying, The thing that's going to come when you pass away, I want now, and I want it more than I want you. He turns his back on his father. He turns his back on his family. And not only does he turn his back on them by saying, Give me this now, I wish you were dead. He leaves. He leaves the place where he, where he grew up. He leaves the people he grew up with. He leaves the home that was cultivated for him and the community that he developed. in. he strikes out on his own, but in a way that unnecessarily burns bridges. And then he makes all the wrong choices. He loses everything that was given to him. He messes up. And when things take a turn for the worse in that location, he finds himself alone, he finds himself hungry. He finds himself working among pigs, which to the Jewish audience would have been like the worst thing possible because, uh, because uh, pigs are unclean to Jewish people. And being around pigs, touching pigs, engaging with pigs would have made that person unclean. It would, have, it would have grated the ears of the Jewish audience. It's so bad that he longs to eat the food that the pigs are eating, which tells you that the wages he's being paid for the work he's doing aren't enough. For him to eat well, he's in a bad spot. And there are some of us here who are thinking, serves him right. Because he got what he deserved. Hold that thought. Because finally he comes to his senses. And he remembers that in his father's house, everyone has enough. Everyone has what they need. No one goes hungry. So he decides to go back. But in his mind, he's messed up so bad that he can't go back as a son. He's lost that privilege. So he decides that he's going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Do you hear the performance lie? Do you hear it in how he's externalizing? I didn't do the right things. I did the wrong things. Therefore, my worth and value have decreased to the point where I'm no longer good enough to be a son. Now, in some ways, he got exactly what his actions merited. But that last part about not being worthy to be called a son is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And it's another one of the outworkings of the performance lie. The performance lie shrinks our compassion bucket. Now, it's super obvious that the compassion bucket has shrunk for the older brother. We'll get to him later. The way he talks about his brother, he has no compassion for him. But there's also a lack of compassion of this younger son for himself. He's not able to be kind to himself. He's lost the ability to show grace to himself. Not in the sense of ignoring his mistakes, no. But properly framing what those mistakes mean. See, when we lack compassion for ourselves, our our frame, our ability to frame what our mistakes mean gets distorted. And instead of talking legitimately about the things that we do and the consequences that we have, the frame expands to being about the things that we do and that, and who that makes us, or how that changes our value and our worth. I've already talked about how the performance lie was one I believed in, and how it had to do with intelligence. I see. This play out, this lack of compassion in myself, there are still times where if I make a particular kind of mistake, where I do something that was clearly unwise or foolish or just thoughtless, I didn't think about something and I lost an opportunity or I made a mistake, I will say to myself every once in a while, I'll catch myself saying to myself, You idiots! I lose compassion for myself in those moments. Now, making a foolish mistake does not make me an idiot. You know that and I know that, but how many times do we speak those kinds of things to ourselves? How many times do we think those things about others? And if I'm honest and confess, I speak those things about people who drive poorly. <laughs> My compassion bucket gets small there too. So in those moments, I've got to speak a different voice. I've got to speak to that voice and turn kindness upon myself or upon others. Turn compassion upon myself and upon others because the truth is that the things we do don't, don't define the value and worth that we have. So take a moment and consider what size is your compassion bucket? How big is your kindness bucket, your compassion bucket? Towards yourself, even. How do you respond to the mistakes you make? Or the times you get it wrong. How big is your compassion bucket for others? Is it possible that a small that if you find having you're having a small compassion bucket, it's because you've believed the performance lie? Friends, there's a better life for you. That does not make us resilient people. There is more. Even though the younger son is coming with that message rolling through his head and is ready to speak it, when he meets the father, something entirely different occurs than what he has expected. Because the father is living a different story. The father is not living the story based on the performance lie. He's living a different story. And so the turnout, what, how it turns out is different than the son expects. But before we get to the father, we've got to get to the older son. Here's what we know about the older son. The older son sticks around. He doesn't go anywhere. The older son works hard The older son seemingly does everything right. He dots all the I's. He crosses all the T's. He gives himself and his family a good name. And then he hears that his younger brother is back. And not only is his younger brother back, but his father has thrown a party for his younger brother. And all of a sudden, the older brother is outraged. He is incensed and he won't join the party. And when his father comes out from the party to get him, to appeal to him, to try to convince him to come in, he lets his father have it. He says, Look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you see the compassion bucket getting small and small and small, who squandered all your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Performance is at the root of all that he's saying. But what it's producing is rotten because the performance lie creates fertile ground in our souls for for poor things, for bitterness, for entitlement, for judgmentalism. Those are the things that sprout from ground that is seeded with the performance lie. He wants what he thinks he's earned and he doesn't want his brother whom he can't even bring to call his brother to get what he hasn't earned. He wants what he thinks he's earned. He doesn't want his brother to get what he hasn't earned. And he can't stand what the father is doing. He complains about what he hasn't been giving. But when the father responds, what the father tells him is that it was always his. He just never took advantage of the opportunity he had. And that's one of the downsides of the performance lie. Not only does it seed in us bitterness, not only does it lead to a sense of entitlement, not only does it breed in us judgmentalism, especially all those things, if we are the type of people who perform at a high level, but when we live under the paradigm of earning our value and of only getting things that we earn, we miss enjoying the abundance that's already been given, the abundance that's been freely given. He tells us, Father, you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friend. And what the father says basically is, you could have had a party every day. It was all yours. You never had to earn it. It was always there. How many years had the older son lived in that way? Missed so much of what was his, what was freely given, what the father had given with open hands. He missed out he missed out because he thought he needed to earn. And when he didn't get what he thought he had earned, he got bitter. And when his brother came and the father showed him the same open-handedness that he had shown to him, even though he hadn't recognized it, he missed out. He missed out on joining the party. He's steeped in the performance lie. He's invested in it. But the father is living a different story. The father is living a different story. And here's here's what the different story sounds like for the father. The first thing is that even though both brothers' stories are filled with the things that they do or they don't do, at no point does the father mention anything that they've done. That idea of what you do is not even in the framework That the father has. He does not mention what they do or don't do. That governs what they talk about, what they talk about, but it doesn't govern what he talks about. Now, it's not that actions don't matter, it's that the father's very clear that the actions don't determine value or worth. He's telling a different story. The father gives generously. Note that when the younger brother asks for his inheritance, what does the father do? He gives it. He gives it. He's living out the principle, everything I have is yours. He lives it for the younger son. He lives it for the older brother as well. He throws a party. He moves towards his son. When, when the younger son is still on his way, the father bolts as soon as he sees him and meets him. When the older son won't come into the party, the the father goes out. Both those instances would have been culturally sort of jarring for people. And yet in both instances, the father is living a different story. He moves towards his sons. He hosts some massive celebration. The whole community would have been invited to this, to be part of what the family is celebrating He's telling a different story, and in that story, these two young men are never anything other than his sons. Over and over, he calls them his sons. They are either unwilling at times to receive that label or unwilling to acknowledge that label in others, in the case of the older son. But over and over, he refers to them as nothing other than his sons. He's living a different story when the younger son returns among the clothes and the things that are brought and bestowed upon him are things that would signify to anyone who might be tempted to believe that this one has lost his place and his son. The, 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 the robe, the ring, the sandals, all those things would have told anyone that in the father's eye, this young man has never been anything other than his son. And nothing that he did or didn't do would change that. He would always be his son Nothing can shake that designation. He's doing the kinds of things that he hopes may shake the sons out of the performance lie. And they're the kinds of things that can shake us out of the performance lie as well. What we've done doesn't determine our value or our worth in the eyes of God. God is open-handed with us, not because of what we've done but because of who he is and because he loves us. He is generous to us. God calls us his sons and his daughters before we've done anything. He calls us his sons and his daughters because we we are his. God moves towards us. God always makes the first move. God always initiates. Our value is secure, my friends. Our value is secure because it is sourced in God and it comes from God. The issue of our value was established at creation. In Genesis, it tells us then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. We carry in us the image and likeness of God. We are valuable because God has made us that way. God has made us in His image and His likeness. We are birthed. We are created out of love. It was established at creation. And if there were any doubt, it was settled at the cross. But God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Without doing anything to earn it or to deserve it. And in fact, without many of us, with any of us, any of us, having even been born, God shows his love for us. God shows our value and our worth. It is settled at the cross. In Jesus' sacrifice to defeat the powers of sin and death, the things that alienate us from God, from one another, that alienate us from goodness in our world, God settled those things because we have intrinsic value and worth to him. Regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we haven't done, regardless of what we will do, regardless of what we won't do. We have value. And the issue of our value will be reaffirmed at the last things, in the last days. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children his daughters and his sons. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There is a glory that we will share in that has been bestowed upon us, not because of what we've done, but because we are his children, because we are his. That our value and worth have been established since the beginning and will endure for eternity is a relief because it means that our value is steadfast. It means that our value is unchanging. It means that our value is consistent. It originates in God and is steadfast in Him, and a steadfast source of value is necessary for a resilient core. A steadfast source of value is necessary for a resilient core. Here's why, because we're all going to get it wrong sometimes, and we're all going to get it right sometimes. And we will never be resilient people if our sense of value, our sense of worth varies with how we're doing. Because, yeah, maybe easy things will come at us on the days where we feel really, really, really good and they won't knock us down. But what happens in the days where something hard comes and we've messed up and we feel worthless? We'll crumble. But if our sense of value is secure, then on the good days and on the days that aren't good, we can meet those things because God is with us. Because our sense of value is not at stake. There are many, many, many things that come to mind when people think about Christianity, maybe even another religion. When you think of Christianity, what comes to your mind? What do you think comes to mind to other people? Some of the things that come to mind are good. Some of the things not so good Some things are neutral. How many would say that when they think of faith, when they think of following Jesus, that when they think of Christianity, one of the first things that comes to mind is celebration or party? Maybe not many, and yet it's a theme that comes through the Scriptures over and over and over again. The themes of celebration, of feasting, of party come over and over and over again, and they are thread through these three stories that Jesus tells, and they are there in the story that we read There is a party. In this passage, there is a party because someone returns to what he always was. There is a party because there's an opportunity for the community to join in in celebrating that thing, that someone has come back. There is a party because someone has turned from death to life. He has turned from being alienated, from being lost from from extracting himself from that which gives him security. There's a return to that, and there is life in that, and so there is a party. There is a party and a celebration because someone has understood how steadfast his source of value is. There is a party because he has been freed of living like he has to earn it. And those things are available to us as well you can be freed from feeling that you have to earn it and there is a party for that. There is a party when we understand and accept that the issue of our value was established at creation, was settled at the cross and will be reaffirmed at the last things. There is a party when we release the lie that we need to earn our place, earn our value, earn our worth and receive our value as daughters and sons as children of the king, children of the Lord. This is a party where it's not just the people in the story are invited, but all of us are invited to the party. We're not invited because of what we've done. We're not invited because of what we haven't done. We're not invited because we look good or are dressed well. We're not invited because we have resources or lack them. We are invited because we are His. And because God loves us, you are invited, not because of what you've done, but because the Father loves you. Because the Father loves you. Join in the party today, join in the celebration, join in the freedom. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we confess that the performance lie is alluring. We confess that the performance lie has also trapped some of us. We confess, Lord, that it's been appealing because it's manageable. Lord, free us today. Free us, Lord, because it is exhausting to have to consider time and time again what kind of worth we have. What kind of value we have. Lord, right now, for those of us who are engaged in that lie, bring truth. Give us a sense of how freeing it can be to have that issue settled, to never have to worry again about whether we are good enough or how much this mistake is going to cost us, how much it's going to cost our sense of worth. Lord, may we see the picture, not just of the Father running towards us, but of Jesus on the cross, arms wide open, welcoming us. May we come. May we celebrate. May we be free. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join as we worship?